Let's take our Bibles together. We're in the book of Revelation. We have uh, uh, been there. We will be here for a while. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It is our text for this morning. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear that very satisfying sound of thin Bible paper. All right. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To, one, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Please join me in a prayer of preparation. Father, we thank you for the Bible, for this collection of your words given through men, carried through the centuries, and now we have so, such an easy access to it. God, we know that you have given it, you have protected it, you have put it in our hands for our sakes so that we may become wise to salvation, so that we may be sanctified in your truth, so that we may be prepared and hopeful for eternity and the ultimate return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, in this time of proclaiming it, we need your help by your Holy Spirit to plant in us your word. Father, even through the words of a mere man, that somehow your word would transcend that, that we would receive from you the daily bread that we need. God, we pray that Jesus himself would be glorified in all of this, and we ask it in his name. Amen. I think uh, most here are probably familiar with that technique uh, of providing constructive feedback to someone. Maybe you've used it with an employee or you've had a discussion with your manager and have been on the receiving end of this. The, 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 the technique has a crass nickname, but I'm going to call it the correction sandwich. You know, the bread on the outside is fresh and tasty, but what is between the slices is, well, unpleasant. And you get it. If you're going to provide some constructive feedback to someone, it's helpful to begin with something positive, only then to provide the criticism, and then finally soften the blow with another affirmation of something good. As I was studying this text this past week, it, it kind of struck me that this is a letter kind of like that. It's a correction sandwich. 
affirmation, followed by a pretty stinging rebuke, but then followed by a brief statement of affirmation. Yeah, verse 1 begins, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And I, as I said last week, angel here is not a supernatural being sent from the Lord, but, but a messenger in, in the most basic sense, angelos in the original. That's simply a messenger. In the most basic sense here, a gospel messenger for the church. And I take it that it's addressed to the pastor and representative of the whole church. Of course, while the, the messenger is the addressee, like I said, the message is for the church. But not just the church at Ephesus, but the, for the church universal. We have it in our Bibles here. It's for us too. It's part of the whole. Now what we have in, in the totality of the book of Revelation, this was circulated, of course, to all of the churches. Not just these letters, but the, the visions, the details from the visions that follow. And that uh, was meant to go everywhere. Now, some background here. This is addressed to the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Something about Ephesus. This is the, the closest um, city inland from the island of Patmos where John has been exiled. So just off of the coast of the Aegean Sea uh, in the area called Asia Minor. That was a Roman province, Asia Minor. And Ephesus was the capital city of that province. There was a church there uh, established by the Apostle Paul in about 55. That, uh, church, that city of Ephesus was really the center as well of the worship of the goddess Artemis. There was a massive temple there to this pagan goddess. And because that was such a prominent uh, fixture in that city, there was a huge economic benefit that was attached to all of the worship of, of Artemis. And all you have to do is look in, in your Bibles in Acts chapter 19. You see how that was all structured there. Paul, the apostle, ministered there for at least two years that we know of. There's a, there's a, a story in Acts chapter 19 where, where a riot broke out in Ephesus. And this was, a, this was over the economic concern of, of money opportunity being lost as a result of the conversion of many to Christianity. They'd heard the gospel and they, they took their, their articles of worship, their books and their false stuff and they burned it. And those who were uh, profiting from the, from the making of these little statues representing Artemis, they feared their business would go up in smoke. And, and there was, and indeed it did, in the fire where everything was burned. But it, it created this riot and that riot found its way to some sort of grand meeting place, and they had a, a coliseum, an amphitheater there that was probably the largest in the, the known world at the time, uh, able to seat about 50,000 or hold 50,000. We also know that uh, Timothy, uh, Paul's uh, protege, pastoral protege, served there probably beginning in about 62. There's a little background. There's also some speculation, though there's no real direct evidence, that the Apostle John, the one who is the author of this through the Holy Spirit, um, that he had actually served for a time uh, in Ephesus. No direct evidence. Now, I take it that by the time of, of writing of Revelation, there was probably a pretty significant group of believers there in that Ephesus church. Yet, 
That said, I, I still take it that it would have been a pretty small minority of the overall population of Ephesus. So there's a little background just to get a sense of it. Now, the address here in the text continues. The words, as we see um, from the first part, second part of verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, this is Jesus speaking. His self-description here, him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the substance of, of what John saw in his vision. We see that in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 16. One who's holding the seven stars. Chapter 1, verse 13. The one who walks among the golden lampstands. He is among the churches. And he, and he says to those at Ephesus, I know your works. Of course, he's omniscient, but he's, he's among the golden lampstands. He's among these churches. And his proximity is meant to communicate, I know what's going on there. I know your works. I see what's happening. And what he has to say, as I've described in my intro, what he has to say includes both commendation, but also some criticism, and a pretty harsh criticism. So those words, commendation and criticism, those are my simple headings for our uh, time in the Word today. So as we look at this, let's begin with commendation. Commendation. Now you all know that a commendation is simply an acknowledgement of a good thing. So when you're commended for something, what do you want to do? You want to keep doing it, right? And, and parents, you know this, especially when your children are young. You do this to, you commend them to reinforce good behavior. Thank you for using your manners. Thank you for putting your toys away. Thank you for putting your dishes in, your, in the sink. You, you commend what is good behavior. And that, that is reinforcing. But it's not just parenting, right? You know this. It could be very formal and, in fact, a component uh, of your own job in the military. There are ribbons and medals. There are commendations that you wear in your uniform. In a fast food restaurant, it might simply be employee of the month, right? Your picture on the wall. At a local elementary school, it might be a special parking spot closest to the main entrance because goodness knows nobody likes to walk across a big parking lot so what a way to commend somebody here's the special parking spot who doesn't like to be commended right now how much better how much better to be commended by the lord jesus himself and jesus begins we see this in verse two i know your works why because he's among them right and he and he gets specific i know your works your toil and your patient Endurance. And these are good things. Again, Jesus knows because he walks among them, he holds the stars, right? This is a city, as we've already said, that is dominated by, by the worship of Artemis. And if you can understand that the, the collective prosperity of that city was dependent on this pagan religion. So you can imagine if you were a believer in Jesus... If you're part of this church, how much of a toil it would be to hold on to that truth in the face of the cultural opposition. Because everything that you're doing when you gather together as believers is against the economic structure of that very city. Church would be no problem if, well, they just meet together and, and they don't have any effect on our industry. But, but as people come to faith in Christ and they abandon Artemis worship, well, that has an economic impact, right? So it would, it would be difficult for them. It would be a toil to hold to that truth. 
to not bend to the cultural demands, right? It would require endurance. And in their minds, each and every decision that they made, they would be setting aside temporal benefits, op- economic opportunity, setting those aside for eternal ones. Now, we live in a time that I think is increasingly dominated by ideologies, and I think you'd agree with this, that are anti-Bible, anti-God, anti-Christian. And for some here this morning, I understand that that makes living out your faith hard. You see examples in the news, and, and I know it's not overly threatening, but these things are happening, and I suspect maybe with increasing regularity we will see these. Perhaps you heard about this, this uh, person in Australia, Andrew Thornburn. A few months ago, he was hired as a, a CEO of a, an Australian rules football club. He was hired, knowing that he was a believer. He was forced to resign 24 hours later. It was discovered. <laughs> it was discovered. They already knew he was a believer. But the pressure, the cultural pressure, because he belonged to a church. And that church taught what the Bible says about human sexuality. Opposing homosexuality. Opposing homosexual marriage. It's not even a marriage. He was part of that church. News got wind of it. Oh, well, we just found this out. And he's out of a job 24 hours later. Now, you can, I think you can understand if, if you're in that situation, as believers are in that situation, the great temptation is a high-paying job. And, and maybe, maybe I won't say anything. Just go along to get along. The temptation to disavow biblical beliefs for the sake of some economic gain. Brothers and sisters, that's a warning. We have to be on guard. Prepare your mind in advance for that day when you'll be faced with faithful to the gospel, faithful to the word of God, or an economic opportunity. Well, Jesus commends the church at Ephesus. They didn't bend. They endured the opposition from the culture. Well, this commendation then continues. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and he's specific here, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Apparently, there were pseudo-apostles, fake apostles. These are ones that had presented themselves as having apostolic credentials, but were probably motivated by greed. They were itinerant preachers, skilled in the art of rhetoric. They were compelling communicators, and they would find an audience by traveling to different churches. Gospel light or gospel corrupted. We, we see this in the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians, Paul facetiously refers to the, some of these as super apostles. He doesn't mean it as a compliment, the so-called super apostles. In Galatians, we can see the Apostle Paul there. He rebuked the believers. They had come under the spell of some of these false teachers. In that case, they were Judaizers. They were um, Jewish, apparently, or claiming to be Christian, who were were, uh, combining the message of Christ, the exclusivity of the gospel, and putting a demand of Jewishness on top of it. Eat the right food, do all of the Jewish laws, all of that stuff. He rebukes them. 
Why have you come under their spell? So easily you've fallen away. And, and getting back to the Ephesian church specifically, Paul's earlier counsel to the elders there no doubt had a lasting impact on them. I can't, I can't help but think. And you can see this in Acts chapter 20. There's this, this emotionally intense departure where the Apostle Paul's breaking away. But he warns them in this address that he makes to the elders. He warned them that there would be those who would twist the scriptures and corrupt the gospel. Here are his remarks in Acts 20. And, and I can't help but think that this had this enduring influence on them. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here's what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And get this. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be alert. Jesus was commending them for testing the false apostles, measuring them against the word of God. And I take it that they were discerning and they had remained so. And it's this very thing that, that John himself had instructed in his first, first epistle. He, told, he tells his, uh, in this letter, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but here's the expression, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many. And here's the test. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. The spirit of the Antichrist is the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Now, there's a whole lot packed into that. But the one who denies that Jesus is the divine Son of God, the one who denies that he has come in the flesh, the one that denies that he died vicariously for our sin, the one that denies that he rose again from the grave, if anyone denies that Jesus is, is the Son of God who died and rose again on the third day, denying the resurrection of Jesus makes you antichrist. John says, test the spirits. And I take it that this is what the Ephesians were doing. They were testing the spirits. Jesus commended the Ephesians because they knew the truth and they could discern what was false. And they had, not, they had not grown weary in their doctrinal purity and they had remained steadfast in the face of cultural opposition. Well, the next part of the sandwich is the criticism. We're going to get there, but I'm just bundling the, the, the affirmations together. So skip that, and down to verse 6, he comes with another commendation. Verse 6, Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now there's a little bit of mystery. Who are the Nicolaitans? They're mentioned also, if you look further ahead in your Bibles to verse 15. They're associated there with the, 
the correction uh, towards the church at Pergamum. Now, according to Irenaeus, he's an early church father, they were a sect led by one named Nicholas. The Nicolaitans were led by this one named Nicholas, supposedly. Now here, get this. Remember Paul's warning to the Ephesians? Some will rise up from within you, deceiving. This is supposedly one of the seven early Greek converts from Acts chapter 6, verse 5. These were the proto-deacons among Philip, Nicholas, one of them. This is what Irenaeus says. He is said to have abandoned the true faith. He became apostate and embraced uh, an idea of Gnostic licentiousness. Gnosticism was a, a heresy in the first and second century. It held that uh, only the spiritual things mattered. So there was a, you, salvation by secret knowledge, right? And because only the spiritual mattered, the body doesn't matter. Do what you want with it. Whatever some might consider immoral, fine, go have at it. But the spirit, that's what's important. Apparently, this, this is what the Nicolaitans were about. Paul warned the Galatians that they should not use their freedom in Christ, which indeed we do have, as an opportunity to indulge the flesh. That's Galatians 5.13. And, and a few sentences later, the Apostle Paul said this, affirming the importance of keeping the body in check, that you cannot separate the body from the spirit and somehow just do what you want with the body and remain spiritual. He says this, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and that the works of the flesh are evident. And he lays them out. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, that is to say, make a practice of these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you're committed to that stuff, if you're not repenting of it, but rather embracing it, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, if, slightly speculative, if the Nicolaitans are like this, we can see why Jesus hates them, and he commends the Ephesian church for hating their works too. And just a little further color on this, Nicolaitans were said to be a Greek version of those who followed the teaching of Balaam. And if you look back in your Old Testament, Numbers chapter 25, uh, the connection here is made in, 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 in verse 16. But the way of Balaam is connected to the Nicolaitans there. It was that way of unbridled sexual immorality. But whoever these Nicolaitans were, the Ephesians hated their ungodly practices, which the Lord also hates. And so, they were commended for it. Now, there could be a modern analogy to the Nicolaitans. And I might, and this is just the way I see this, but we know that some churches have embraced and attempted to normalize sexual immorality, celebrating same-sex unions, even going as far as to call them marriages, which they're not, and equating them somehow with God's design. And of course, perhaps you, maybe not, but I, maybe you've heard of the United Methodist Church and their very public debate on the matter. They're being split. And I'm grateful that there are some faithful churches that are saying, no, we're not going along. 
So Jesus commends the church at Ephesus, not only for their doctrinal purity and faithfulness to the Scripture, but for pursuing holiness. And brothers and sisters, it, it, it should be obvious what Jesus commends, we should seek to do. Like the Ephesians, we should seek doctrinal purity, holding to the Word of God, testing the false teachers, and pursuing holiness. As we see more and more churches bowing to cultural pressure to accept and even celebrate what God hates, whether it's a corruption of the gospel message or capitulating to the values espoused by the sexual revolution, we, brothers and sisters, must hold fast to the truth, knowing that message compromise and moral compromise ultimately undermine the faith. Do what Jesus commends. Well, next, we get to the criticism. To abandon something is to neglect it. You abandon it, you leave it behind. Something you decide you're simply not going to invest time and energy. Uh, Kathy and I like to look at homes for sale in Papillion. It's just, she has this app on her phone, and we'll be driving around. She'll look it up. And Anyway, a few weeks ago, she showed me this house. Look at the price in this. It's amazing. And, but when we looked at it, the floor was torn up. Some walls were knocked out. It looked like a fixer-upper project that somebody just said, nah, I can't do it. They abandoned it. There's no moral consequence for abandoning a fixer-upper project. But there's a moral consequence for abandoning your children. Child and Protective Services may come and take them away. There's a moral consequence for abandoning your marriage. Some things, if you abandon them, will destroy your soul. Addressing the Ephesian church, the Lord gets to the middle of the sandwich. He brings this criticism. He brings this rebuke. And the words just beginning with this part of the address, but this I have against you. This is serious. Pay attention. It's not a small matter. And he describes it, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, people have said, well, what's that? What is that love? It's not specific here. The love they had at first. It's something they once had, probably early on when the church was begun, when their faith was new, when the excitement of knowing that their sins was, were forgiven, that was fresh in their minds, when they found that <clears throat> freedom from slavery to the immoral practices and the worship of dead idols, they found that. Now, What's the love they had at first? Well, well, we do know from Scripture the kind of love that Jesus does affirm. Right? We, we know with certainty. We read this together. Quoting Deuteronomy, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Sorry. So, so they were just commended for doctrinal and moral purity. They were commended for that. 
That is obedience to the scriptures. Is that not evidence of true love for God? John, in his first letter, in fact, says this, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Is that not the same thing? Well, clearly something is missing in Ephesus. Perhaps what they loved is themselves for being so fastidious about their doctrine and morality. Maybe they were really loving themselves for how well they were doing. So they used to love God, heart, soul, and mind, and their obedience was evidence of their love, but somewhere along the way they became so darn pleased with themselves that they forgot who they should obey and why they should obey. Yeah, they would reject false teachers, but they did it not out of love for God anymore, but perhaps to puff themselves up. It, this is purely speculative. Now, if this is the path that they were taking, if that was the path, if they abandoned love, truly, they would become just like the Pharisees who battled with Jesus, who were constantly challenging him. Jesus rebuked them for their self-righteousness. And Jesus called them hypocrites because, well, to quote Matthew 6, 5, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. They were practicing the righteousness in public to be affirmed. Praise me. Pretending to be devoted to the Lord, but really more than anything, just being devoted to their own reputation and affirmation. So maybe, maybe in this context, the Ephesians had self-righteous. Thank you, Greg. Give me a moment. So it's possible. Ephesians had become self-righteous. Brothers and sisters, we have, to, we have to guard our hearts against that. And I think the ones most prone to this kind of sin, the sin of self-righteousness, are those who have been believers for a long, long time. Those who've grown up in believing families where, where there's been a general trajectory of obedience to the scriptures. Those are the ones most in danger of self-righteousness. That's one possibility. Here's another. The love that the Ephesians had abandoned may have been, in fact, related to the second part of the great commandment. Second part of the great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe the Ephesians had all of this zeal for God and his word, but forgot to love others. Now, here's a thought. They were commended for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. But, but what if they didn't just hate their works, but hated the Nicolaitans? What if they didn't just hate the teaching of the false apostles, but actually hated them? It's a subtle line. It's a subtle line that it's easy to cross. And I'm going to give you a personal example how this is easy to do. And this is going to be a little bit of a confession. I, I hate, I hate the ideologies flowing out of the sexual revolution that promote 
same-sex unions that promote pornography, that promote transgenderism. I see that it is so very destructive and there's this, this wholesale blindness in the culture as to how these ideas twist and enslave people and it seems so terribly pervasive. You can't get away from it. It's, it's pushed in our faces through marketing, political decisions. It's invading education. I, I hate that ideology. It is anti-Bible. It is anti-God. But here's the confession and I'm ashamed to say this. Sometimes I see the people who've been captured by these lies no longer as image bearers of God who desperately need a savior. Sometimes it's contempt. Now I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying in my heart, I've judged them in an unthinking and careless way. Just in my mind, like I said, but perhaps in certain moments I'm seeing people as not redeemable. And when that happens, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. When that happens, I'm not loving God as I ought. In those moments, I have abandoned the love that God had for me. The love that God had for me is he opened my eyes to my own depravity. The love that God had for me was showing me Jesus, the Son of God crucified in my place. The love of God for me was the fact that he heaped the entire record of my sin upon Jesus at the cross. The love of God that he had for me was granting me that, that full pardon and cleansing in the sight of God. So in my heart, if I decide that someone cannot have that, I've abandoned love itself. And really, really, how am I any different than any other sinner? My sins may be different, but they're not any less condemnable. I have to guard my own heart. I'm rebuked by this. And brothers and sisters, you know, when, when the stuff is way out there, when the sin is like so far from us. We know it's wrong. We know it's evil. We hate those works. And sometimes we veer into mocking. And then when we get close up to someone, we might forget while they're twisted up in that sin, what they need most is not my condemnation but the gospel. So what's an individual risk of self-righteousness or contempt for people bound up by sin could also become an institutional one. If the church as a collective behaves in such a way as to withhold the gospel from the ones most gripped by sin, then Jesus gives this warning. Okay, this is the collective. The way in which we're structured, paint a scenario. The sin is out there. But what if, what if somebody, what if a homosexual couple walks into our church? Do we have contempt? Or do we have compassion do we see them as in desperate need of a savior what if and and this may happen yet brothers and sisters somebody who's gone down that road of transgenderism even to be altered surgically 
and they're gripped by sin and they need an answer. Do we, do we have the stuff collectively to give them the gospel? I pray that we do. We haven't had to encounter it yet, but it's coming. And dealing rightly with it, dealing the way Jesus would deal with it, depends on remembering the love we had at first. So here's the warning. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repent. See, the good news here, there is a way out. There's a way out. Remember the grace of God to you. Remember the forgiveness of your own sin in Jesus' death. Remember the promise of eternal life in Jesus' own resurrection. Remember the way the Holy Spirit poured the love of God into your heart. And then what? Repent. Return. Accept the rebuke and confess to the Lord. And let that that grace that brought forgiveness to you the very first time, let that be the lens through which you see everyone else. But the warning remains, brothers and sisters, if you do not, if you do not repent, and I'm not accusing you, I'm saying let's take this as a collective warning, what we should be commended for and hold to that. Let's hold on to the first love. But know this, if a church falls into that place where they do not repent and return to the first love, if you're not a church that truly brings the gospel to all, if you preach moral conformity as a prerequisite for salvation, and I take this personally, if you're not regularly preaching forgiveness in Jesus, if I'm not holding up the free offer of salvation in Jesus to people who are bound up by sin, then Jesus says to Ephesus, and he says this to us, I'll remove your lampstand. Now, remember, the lampstand isn't the light. The lampstand is that which holds up, holds forth the light. So if the church is not holding forth the light of Christ, if the church is not preaching true forgiveness and freedom of Christ for all, there's no reason for the church to exist. This loss of the love you had at first is not a small thing. So, the text says, listen up. Well, it doesn't say that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the scripture says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Look, if you repent, if you come back, if you love like you loved at first, you're going to have eternal life. Repentance for sin and genuine trust in Christ, that shows genuine love. And that is the path to eternal life. So brothers and sisters, just kind of wrap this up. When you look to Christ and his cross, when you truly repent of your sin, you will love what Jesus loves. And you will love like Jesus loves. And the overflow of his love in you will give you life forever. Take the commendation. And look at the criticism as a warning of what to avoid. And may the Spirit apply this to our hearts and to us as a collective. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us 
And we thank you for the warnings to this church in Ephesus. And Father, uh, it, I don't think we've gone there. Um, but Lord, we ask that you would keep us faithful to your word, to hating the works of evil, to testing those who are false teachers, but also, God, more than anything, that you remind us to love, love like Jesus. I need that, Father. I need that reminder. When I see people twisted up in sin and the destructiveness of it, oh God, give me the compassion of Jesus more than anything else so that what flows from me is not judgment but hope for their freedom in the gospel. May that be true for all of us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.